everybody, and welcome to another episode of uh, Phil and the Mic. I, as, I, as always, am Darren Michael, and with me, my partner in crime, Mr. Phil Calise. Phil, how are you today? Um, I'm extra excited to be here with our uh, special guest that we have. So this is, uh, this is going to be a fun one. Looking forward that's to it. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, today we've got with us a, a former Major League pitcher who played parts of 11 seasons in Major League Baseball with the Yankees, Giants, Expos, Reds, Royals, winning 38 games, saving 24, including in a very impressive three-season stretch where he went 21-7 and seven with 18 saves and a 2.59 ERA. Current all-star financial advisor, welcome to the show, Mr. Andy McGaffigan. Hey, thanks, guys. This has uh, been a long time coming. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to be able to get this done today. Yeah, we're, we're, we're so excited to have you. And I know I know the, the last three months with with COVID and pneumonia have just been have just been awful. So uh, so really excited. And thank you so much for for joining us today. And, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of to kind of get started. And you and I kind of talked a little bit about this before. But, you know, part of the excitement is and, and Phil and I kind of grew up playing baseball like like most boys, I would think. And you always dream about playing in the major leagues. And of course, you get to that moment where you realize, you know what, I'm never going to play in the major leagues. But you didn't have that experience. Your experience was different where you had that moment. And so I wanted to talk a little bit a little bit about that. Phil, you want to you want to kind of talk and start us off? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when, when, again, it's, it's, it's really a pleasure that we have you on here. And so what we were thinking is something that's a little different is understanding some of these great experience that that you've had. Um, and you could share a little detail around it, but to kick off the pre MLB career, just in terms of early childhood, what was your experiences around the game of baseball? When did you get started? And, and was there that moment where you're like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm considerably better than my peers. Or was there, was there a moment that occurred where you're like, I could do this at a pretty high level? Well, actually I was a late bloomer. I didn't start playing until I was 12. Okay. And uh, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, never got locked into any one, um, you know, area for very long. Um, but when I was 12, we moved to, or when I was 10, we moved to West Palm Beach. And then I, I kind of got, we, we put down some roots and I was able to kind of get plugged in with, with Little League at 12 years old and, and then playing uh, Babe Ruth, you know, 13, 14, 15. Uh, interesting. I got cut from my junior high school baseball team for a year, um, and but I did play Babe Ruth in between, right? And then uh, going to high school, I was the last kid picked on my team, and I didn't play a game the entire year. And when I, I, I didn't even get in at bat. I didn't get. I I had no plate appearances. I had no field uh, experience at all. I was the kid that sat at the end of the bench. And when the ball went over the screen, that was my job to go get that ball. <laughs> and so that was a very difficult year because, you know, I was playing with all the guys I'd kind of grown up with. And, well, I was watching them play and I was experiencing what splinters on my, on my butt felt like. And, uh, and that summer, I had a real decision to make as to whether I wanted to keep playing or not. And because, uh, you know, I could have done anything else. And and I, just, I chose to stick it out. And over that summer, I, I grew uh, in height and um, I played summer ball and I got a little bit better. But the biggest thing that, that changed was I used to be an outfielder. I could run and throw and catch, but I couldn't hit worth any, I was terrible. 
And so um, I decided to become a pitcher over the summer. And so when I came back for the season in my junior year in high school, that's when I started pitching. And I use that phrase loosely because I was a thrower. Okay. I was not a pitcher. I was a thrower. I could throw hard. Guys did not want to take batting practice off of me. I was, I could, I could put it right down the middle or I might hit them in their, in their, in the helmet. And so it was all over the place, which actually kind of helped as a pitcher. Right. Yeah. And so um, from that point on, I actually had game time. And uh, later on, I, I, my high school coach actually lives here and I live in Lakeland, Florida. And years ago, my high school coach actually moved here and I had the conversation with him about how come I didn't play my first year at all. I always thought that was, and I still do to this, to this day, I feel like that was very unfair yeah. and unfortunate to, to be sure. And he said, you know, you just weren't good. And I, I just, I, you know, I just wasn't. And so when I, when I changed positions and got on the hill, everything, everything kind of changed for me at that time. That's interesting. And he, he said, quite frankly, he said, I said, well, why didn't you just cut me from the team? He said, there's no way in the world I could cut that arm because I, mm. I literally could throw it from the outfield, the home plate in the air. Oh, wow. Said, I, I just couldn't cut that arm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it was very strategic and timely that I, I became a pitcher. So, so that did was, you, that was, that was, that was kind of when you were, uh, when you were a junior. So your junior year, you were, you were kind of learning how to become a pitcher. And I'm guessing that kind of went into your, your senior year. What did your senior year look like then? Well, it was, you know, it, I didn't have a lot of um, help pitching. I had a lot of raw talent. Okay. So, um, I think my senior year, I threw a no hitter and uh, which was, you know, crazy, but I, I didn't have a lot of coaching. Uh, on on pitching right Uh, there was some because by then I was starting to play American Legion ball which was you know I don't even know if they have American Legion baseball anymore but you know I got to I got to get some a little bit better coaching and uh, and I figured out a few things on my own you know but uh, you know as I just continued to get bigger and stronger and 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 better really um, you know just more opportunities started opening up for so that's, I mean, that's, that's a great testament to, you know, resolve and sticking with something. I mean, that's, that's, you think, you tend to think, I guess I, I do, I'll say for myself, you tend to think that most that go on to have even good college careers were good from a young age, were clearly one of the best one or two players on their team at all times and always stood out. But your story, I'm sure, is not uncanny. I mean, I'm sure there are guys that struggled along the way. The famous one is Michael Jordan, right? In basketball, getting cut from his, yep. his varsity team. And so it happens. Um, interesting thing. And I know the draft process has changed a thousand times, but, but looking at the draft process, when you were, uh, I guess, first drafted in 74, you were drafted right. three times, right? That's, that's, right. that's, I mean, talk about the story of being wanted and making decisions <laughs> and so many things that go in the way, but it looks like pretty much each time you improved your draft position um, or, or significantly improved it from the first draft right. to the second, what did that whole process look like? Can you talk us through a little bit around? Sure. The first process? time, the first time when I got drafted by Cincinnati out of high school, that was the biggest surprise of my life. Um, short of my wife saying yes to marry me. Um, 
because I literally had no aspirations after high school baseball. Um, I, I knew that there were always scouts in the stands, but there were two players on my team that I always thought they were heads and shoulders above me talent wise. And, you know, I just, I just didn't have any comprehension of my value as a, as a player. And so, um, on, it was graduation day from high school that, that I got drafted by the Reds. And you literally could have knocked me over with a feather. Um, because I always thought we had this one kid named Julian Rodriguez, right-handed pitcher, um, Cuban immigrant. Uh, the guy had unbelievable talent, great fastball, very mature pitcher, you know, great slider, uh, good base, you know, high baseball IQ. Uh, just, and I'm in my mind's eye, he's a number one draft pick. But I had no real realization or comprehension of what a number one draft pick really looked like. But this kid was really, really good. And so I always thought that all the scouts in the stands were there to be, uh, to be in front of Julian Rodriguez. And then there was also another guy named Greg Dahl, who was a third baseman, first baseman, catcher, really good guy, good player, really good offensive player, good defensive player. And I'm thinking this guy's going to get drafted too. And, and that was about it. And then on graduation day, Julian did get, get drafted. And I forget, it was like the 27th round or 28th round. And I'm like, holy cow. And I got drafted in the 29th round, just right after. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what, what just happened? <laughs> I was totally caught flat-footed on this. Yeah. So I just blown away. I'm sure. That was a pretty exciting experience. That's got to be incredible. So. From the experience of getting that, I guess the phone call, right? Was it a phone call? You get a phone yeah. call, blows yeah. your, knocks your socks off. What is the decision to to go on to? I believe, um, to, what is it? West Palm? No, Twin? No, where Palm Beach State? What What's the decision to forego? Right, going off with the Reds and going there. Well, again, because I had no real understanding of what it meant, um, I had no idea of what even it meant to get drafted in the 27th round or whatever round it was. Money-wise, I didn't know what that meant. Uh, where would they you know, send me? And I, I so when, when uh, in between the time when I got drafted and I actually met with the scout to talk about, you know, do I accept the offer or do I decline the offer? You know, I, I kind of looked at my dad. My dad was like, I don't know. <laughs> and, and so there was another... Uh, former major league player, Ken Johnson. He was a right-handed pitcher for the Braves and the Astros and the Expos and about 10 other teams. Um, he, was my, he was my American Legion coach and his oldest son was my shortstop on my high school team. Hmm. So I remember going over to his house one night um, and asking him, I said, you know, coach, I, I, I don't know what to even, I don't even know the questions to ask, let alone what my answers should be. And because I'm thinking about, all right, so is there going to be a bonus involved here, a signing bonus or, or, or what? And so he kind of loosely walked me through how he knew it, how he knew it to be, what his experiences were. But basically it boiled down to, he said, well, listen, the bottom line is they're going to probably offer you some money, but maybe not. And you have to decide whether 
you want to accept that or not, if that's good enough for you. Because even by this time, up until that time, let me rephrase it, up until that time, I didn't even have a, a college aspiration. I was yeah. going to go paint nails with my neighbor across the street who owned a carpent, uh, construction company. I was going to be a carpenter. You know, right? So, um, but in between that time, uh, my junior college baseball coach offered me a full scholarship. Now, a full scholarship to a community college is not a big deal financially, but it's a start, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, like no other institutions had given me, you know, had given me any uh, interest at all. And so I had that at least in my back pocket. So when uh, George Zura, I still remember him, he was the scout that, that drafted me. He came over to the house, got my mom and dad, my sister sitting on the, on the, on the, uh, live, on the, the couch in the living room. And George is there and he's talking about, you know, the Cincinnati Reds are very interested in me and, and they're going to give me an opportunity to go play baseball. They're going to, they're going to put me in Billings, Montana. Uh, and they're going to pay me like 400 bucks a month. And I look at my dad and I said, so, so, so we're not talking about any kind of a bonus here. He goes, no, you know, in your slot, there's, there's really not any money. Yeah. We, but we do give you an opportunity to go play. And I said, well, you know, I don't think I'm really interested in going to Billings, Montana. I appreciate the opportunity but at least I've got a two-year scholarship here at Palm Beach Community College, and I think I'm going to go that way. And to his credit, uh, the scout looked at me and said, son, I think that's a good decision. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he said, you know, and I, because here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, number one, physically, I'm, I'm not really prepared for pro ball. Yeah. Emotionally and mentally, there's no way I could, I would want to be out on my own right at that. You know, it just, it just wasn't, yeah. a good, it wasn't a good fit for me. Yeah. 18-year-old well, kid from Florida to Montana. That's a. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're only going to play for three months. It's a half season league. Yeah. yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's rookie ball. Yeah. Right? yeah. You're going to play June, July, and August, and then you're done. Yeah. Right. And then if you don't show anything, they're not, they're not going to invite you to uh, winter ball or to uh, instructional league. And so it was just, I said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. I appreciate it. it's an honor it, yep. and it was to get drafted, but I think I'm going to go play baseball at Palm Beach Community College. So, so yeah, no, that's 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 incredible. And then, so I mean, I, I want to be cognizant of time, and I know we're going to talk a lot of MLB career and and experiences there. When you get drafted the second time, and then obviously ultimately the third time, that's a totally different experience, right? Because now you're going up in the fifth, sixth round. That that had to be a that had to be a very different experience, right? Even in terms of signing different. bonus and the whole thing. Well, yes and no. Uh, the second time I got drafted by the White Sox, uh, same round, sixth in the sixth round, I think it was, or fifth round, I forget when it was, um, there was no bonus. They were just going to send me to A ball someplace. Wow. And I'm going, and by that time, I had 15 other scholarships to go play all over the Southeast. Oh, wow. And so I'm, I'm like, listen, I've got, you know, at the time I said, I've got, I've got 60 to $80,000 worth of scholarships in my back pocket right now. Cause I had, you know, like I had scholarships to Florida and Mississippi state and, and or um, uh, yeah, Mississippi state and Clemson and 
Georgia and uh, University of Miami. And, and I'm like, something doesn't make sense here. Yeah. And so I, I said, listen, I'm just going to go, I'll go take advantage of what they're going to offer me in Florida Southern. And, and I did. And again, it was an honor and it was a, a real uh, neat thing to get drafted again. That shows you that you're, you're now a prospect, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, that's what I chose to do. And, and then when I got drafted again after my senior year in high school, by the uh, college, by, by the Yankees in the sixth round, uh, they actually gave me a signing balance. And, and it wasn't a lot. In fact, it was only $6,500. So not a lot of money. In yeah. comparison to what they're giving out today, right? <laughs> but it's all relative, and you know, no harm, no foul. I got a chance to play, and I took advantage of it. Yeah, let me let me ask you a quick question, just to take take back for a second. But I wonder, I'm wondering, what was the difference between high school ball to community college than to regular college? The competition always was better. You know, high school was. I played. You know, South Florida. There's a lot of good baseball. Um, oh, yeah. But when oh, yeah. you go to the community college uh, ranks, there's some really good baseball. I mean, it's the best players from every team that actually get to the junior college. Would and you then, equate it to like an all-star high school baseball team? No, it's better. It's better than that. It was better. Yeah, because okay. the guys are bigger. They're stronger. They've yeah. seen they've seen good pitching. They've seen good hitting. Um, the competition is better, especially at the, the Florida junior college system is renowned. Um, yep. It's really, really good. You know, I mean, you look at the guys that came out of the, you know, Dade North, Dade South, uh, Palm Beach, um, or uh, Indian River. There's some really strong players that came out of those leagues, yeah. out of those teams. And so it's still, and it continues to this day to be a really strong feeder, not only for MLB, but also for, you know, NCAA different. Yeah. Yeah. Now your, your, your senior year, um, I mean, you, you were just, I mean, you were just lights out. I mean, the, the stats, the stats are great. I think it was uh, 16 and two. Didn't you win a, didn't you win the championship that year? We did. We won our NCAA division two championship my senior year in college. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What, what's it, what's it like winning a, uh, winning a title like that? It was really, really fun. Um, we had such a great team. And in fact, on Friday, this Friday, a lot of us are getting together and playing golf down here in Lakeland. So it'll be a lot of fun getting together, but all the guys were just really, really good. My junior year. Well, when I, when I signed my letter of intent to play for Florida Southern, it was supposed to be for a guy named Hal Smelsley, who was just uh, an icon in college baseball. He'd been at Florida Southern for like 35 years. He's got several national championships, et cetera. But in, in early August of that year, when I was supposed to have my first year at Florida Southern, my dad reads in the newspaper that, hey, Coach Smelsley just retired. I'm oh, like, wow. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? And so I call him up and I, I say, Coach, I understand that uh, you've retired. He goes, yeah, I have had some health issues. And my doctor said I have to either quit coaching or quit being the AD because I can't do both. And I said, well, quit coaching. I said, okay, this is a problem Yeah, because I, I came to play for you and the program. And he said, well, the good news is we've got a really good guy coming in. And I said, okay, so who is that? And he said, well, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> what did you just say? He said, I can't tell you because he hasn't technically signed his contract yet. And I said, and he said, but the good news is, you know him. And I'm like, well, that narrows it down to about a thousand different coaches. <laughs> and, and he said, and, and more importantly, he knows you and he really wants you to be on his staff. So I'm like, well, I got to really think about this. So I said, I'm going to need a day or two. So I hung up the phone and two days later, it, it came out that Joe Arnold, who was a, he was the pitching coach at Dade North. He was just a, a just a unbelievable talent that everybody knew in South Florida as just a, a great guy. And he was our head coach. So when, when he, when it became obvious that he was, I, I, I signed right away because, you know, I agreed to come right away because he, he had that much influence on me. Um, and he had seen me pitch probably 40 times over the last two years, you know, spring and, you know, winter and, and fall, winter and spring um, leagues. And so I was, I was very pleased, but, but he set the tone for our team in our junior year in our very first uh, team meeting. He made a statement because this guy was, a hard charger, high achiever, um, just type A driven baseball player as a player and as a coach. And he just carried that with him wherever he went. And he said, you know, you've always heard it said that you can't win them all. He said, why not? And I remember going, looking around at the other guys going, well, that's different. I have never <laughs> heard that before. And from that moment on, he just absolutely lit a fire uh, in our team and uh, under our team's behind. And, and, you know, it just drove us to achieve very high, high numbers. So, so que question for you, when, you, you know, obviously you're progressing, you're, you're meeting these different challenges as you're progressing through junior college and then ultimately in D2. Is there a moment that comes where you're saying, I know I can play in the majors? Because obviously as you talk through your early childhood, there wasn't even a, a thought of really playing in college or even, you know, your, your experience was a little different in terms of this, this great talented pitcher. Was there that moment where you're like, I think I can do it? Well, I, I think that really happened for me later in my minor league career in double A, my second year in double A, uh, when we were in Nashville, I was 15 and five and I led the league in strikeouts and ERA and wins. I kind of had an idea I could I could make because the biggest jump in baseball is from double A AA to triple A, not from the triple A to the big leagues. And when I really just ate up the ate up double A, I had a very good idea. And I knew the guys that were in triple A, and I knew I I had as good a stuff or better than them. Um, you know, better fastball, better slider, um, and I had a work ethic that was. You know, that was one thing that my junior college coach instilled in me is just be the best, be the best at whatever you choose to do, whether it's a garbage man or a, a baseball player or a math teacher or whatever, excel at it, do your very best, leave everything on the field and don't have any regrets. And so that was a big thing that Dusty Rhodes, who that was my coach, he just instilled that in us and just beat it into us and he just made us believe it. And uh, I still believe it to this day. But what was, what um, was, yeah, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. 
But I was just going to say, what, what was it like playing in the major in the, in the minor leagues? You know, I mean, is it is it what you think it is like traveling on it's buses? Fun. It's, it's awful. It's I mean, bad. OK, I'll tell you a great example. Um, in double A, my first year in double A, we were in West Haven, Connecticut. You ever been to West Haven, Connecticut? Uh, at, I know Connecticut. Yeah, I know Connecticut. Look at a well. picture of somebody's underarm. That's what West Haven, Connecticut. <laughs> I'm a Florida kid. I get up there. It's freezing cold. There's no leaves on the trees. It's still early, early spring. Yep. You know, it's terrible. The ballpark is like a wreck field. It was ter- the field surface was awful. Um, and like some of the prizes or giveaways, like if if they had a, 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 an old uh, truck tire that they had put on top of a wall out in left center field. And if you hit a ball through that hole in the tire, you want a rebuild generator for your car. So you're going to <laughs> we do it here, right? But the following year in AA, again in Nashville, we had our, uh, our bus driver was an independent record producer. And the owner of the team, and his name was Snuffy Smith, he used to do all of Jerry Clower's uh, stuff, if you know who Jerry Clower was. And, uh, and so the bus that we drove was owned by the team owner, Larry Schmidto. And Larry Schmidto was not a bad guy, but man, he, he threw nickels around like manhole covers, right? And so um, the bus had most of the time no air conditioning. Okay. Now, this is in Nashville, Tennessee in the middle of the summer. The bus had a couple of seats on it that if you sat in them, it'd tear, your, tear a hole in your britches because of the springs popping up. Oh, it had a, a row of windows along the top of the big window that were, you know, they were supposed to open and close for ventilation, right? Well, they leaked like a sieve. And so whenever it rained, water would come down. Oh, yeah, geez. it smelled of mildew. And, uh, it was horrible. And, he, you know, he always put us in the, the worst hotels. Uh, like when we stayed in, when we played the Knoxville Blue Jays, we stayed out on I-40, about 30 miles outside of Knoxville, in some Motel Six, and the only place to eat was a was a, a Waffle House that was across the street, and that's where you ate, morning, noon, and night. So <laughs> it was terrible. My, and I'll tell you what, it's by design that is terrible, because you either get get motivated. And get the heck out of there, or you go home. Yeah, because yeah. no, nobody wants to stay in that situation for very long. Right, and you're not making any money on top of it all. So, and it's interesting. It's all in the news now, right? So all you hear is the minor leaguers talking about, in you know, in pay increases, but in, in improving the 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 the, bat, the life and the, the 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 job and and what that all looks like and uh, I don't know where it's all going to land but there's a lot of traction finally around it it looks like and there really is and I'm glad there is and because what people have found out and discovered is that especially owners of minor league baseball play uh, towns it's a it's a very lucrative business you know and it's if you're the only game in town and you're in Des Moines Iowa you're going to draw some people yeah. and you can make some money and you know, like big, big, bigger towns like Louisville and, you know, Omaha and uh, you, know, well, you name it, there are some serious money. There's some serious money being made by the owners. 
And so that means better ballparks. Yep. Lights are better. Travel is going to be better. Uh, it's just everything is better on a, on a, on a scale, which yep. I'm very happy for because it was, there were some towns that were just like pretty nice towns and pretty nice ballparks, but those were the exception to the rule. Truly. Yeah, it was hard. Interesting. Interesting. So, so you're, 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 you're called up to AAA, which was in Columbus, right? Right. Okay. Called up to AAA. You played in the season there. And uh, I guess the season's winding down or maybe the season is over. And uh, how did you hear that you were being called up to the majors? Well, um, that year was weird because I was scheduled to be the fifth starter in New York out of spring training. But in my very first spring training outing, I hurt my elbow. Mm. So I missed all of spring training and I missed like 70 days or 75 days of the regular season to begin. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was, it was rough. Um, then when I came back, uh, my, my arm speed, my ball speed was so low. I had to go, I, I was throwing under batting practice speed oh, <laughs> and then geez. I actually, and I, and I ended up winning like three or four games in a row. Yeah. It's crazy. And then I kind of got my speed up to right about batting practice and I got my lunch handed to me several times. And, but then I finally got things uh, right and straight, uh, you know, figured out. And I ended up having a, a pretty decent end to my season, my first year in AAA. But I remember we were standing out in the outfield one day uh, during batting practice and it was getting close. It was, it was middle of August. And, you know, that's about the time when they kind of let you know that you're coming up or not. And, and I hadn't heard anything yet. And I remember I was standing out in the outfield and our pitching coach, who was Sammy Ellis, best pitching coach I ever had, uh, just a great guy. He, he, he was always kind of interacting and joking around with guys and talking with them. He was just a good guy. And we're standing out there. There's two or three of us, three or four of us. And I'm, I'm ticked because I hadn't heard anything. And I'm thinking – this isn't going to happen. And, and he kind of looked at me and he goes, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, nothing. And he goes, well, I think you ought to feel pretty happy because they're going to call you up. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, dummy, they're going to call you up. I got the information the other day. I'm just messing with you. Oh, was, my God. Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> so, you know that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good notification, you know. And, yeah. And so after batting practice, we go in the locker room and I call up my wife, Jill, and I tell her we're going to go to New York at the end of the season. And of course, it was just pretty exciting. Now, so, so you had already been so, – so you had finished out your, your double-A year where you were the, the, the most outstanding pitcher. And right. the Yankees said, hey, we want you to come to spring training the next year. Right. Were, were you expecting to go to spring training that year? Oh, yeah. You were I expecting to. Okay. I was in spring training that year. Oh, you were? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, that season, okay. that was my first big league spring training, and that was wonderful. That was such a fun time down in Fort Lauderdale. Yeah, yeah. You're making big league spring training money, which was very nice. Um, they put you up. We were staying at the hotel right on the beach at Gold Ocean Mile. Nice. It was Fort Lauderdale in the mid-70s, late-70s. Not a single guy, not a bad place to be. <laughs> pretty, pretty fun. Pretty, 
So you, so you walk into spring training, like what, what's your impression? You know, the first day you're going to the ballpark there, you know, what, what is that like? You, 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 I guess you get out of your car, you're walking towards the stadium. What, what are you thinking? What's going through your head? What, 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 what's the first thing that you see? What, what do you remember about that whole experience? Well, you park in a very, in a, in a fenced in designated area. So you're driving in and I'm driving in on my, what was I driving? In? I had a, I spent most of my bonus money on my car and it was, it was a 77 Grand Prix. Okay. That's a, oh, wow. that's a pretty hot car. <laughs> and uh, I'm driving, I drive into the parking lot and, you know, there's uh, Mickey Rivers' Rolls Royce and there's Reggie's Porsche. And, you know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm instantly the lowest guy on the totem pole and I might be below ground. <laughs> it was just surreal. It was just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, you walk in the locker room and, you know, it's, you look around and you're going, man, do I really belong here? You know, it's just like, you're starting, it's like you're back in first grade again. You're like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know anything. I don't. And, and then, you know, once you kind of get out on the field and you kind of get comfortable again, and then you realize, yeah, this is, this is pretty cool stuff. So. The only thing normal is the baseball, I would imagine, at the end, right? Like, that's yeah. the only way to get it back, right? Is to and that's, back you, the you know, on the, on the movie Hoosiers, right? Yeah. I love that scene when they're, when they're in the, the big field house, right? Yeah. And Gene Hackman pulls out the tape measure, and he says, hey, measure how tall that basket is. Yep. Yeah. And hey, measure how far it is to the, to the free throw line. He says, you know, man, the, the dimensions of this are exactly like the place we've played it back in wherever. And that's it. You know, you, the baseball way is the same. You know, everybody has to put their spikes on. Everybody's got, you know, it's the same game. It's just at a higher level. Everything yep. is bigger, faster, better. It is, but it's just ultimately it gets down to it's the same game. Yeah. It, you just, you, you got to get past that in your head. And what were your, what were your interactions like with those existing Yankee players that, you know, that I'm sure that you would, you know, growing up and, and, and watching these guys play, what was, you know, what was it like? Are these guys friendly? Were they, you know, they were, the, welcoming? They, were the, they were great. They were absolutely great. Um, you know, Reggie Jackson for all his um, issues, you know, whether it's self-inflicted or just whatever, he was great with me. He just, he was, everybody was so friendly and it wasn't like they were looking at me like I'm trying to steal your job or anything like that. Tommy John was the most gracious person in the world. Ron Guidry was kind of quiet, but just a great goose Gossage was just, he's a big clown. He just loves everybody. And he just, he just loves to throw at people and, and, you know, and throw fastballs and blow people up. And, uh, but they were, everybody was just as friendly as they could be and welcoming. And it was almost like they were saying, you know what, by virtue of you being uh, in this locker room, I accept you as a player. I accept you that you've got talent and you have um, you can be an asset to this team. So there wasn't a person I never met a guy uh, in that locker room that, that was a jerk or, you know, that just, you know, you didn't want to be around or, yeah. or, or it was just they were very well, very yeah. well. That's exciting. So let's get, let's get back. We kind of we kind of went back, but let's get back to the, you know, to, to when you had just gotten called up. 
and you I, I guess you're at when you got called up did you go to Yankee Stadium is that where you went first or did you go someplace no. you went to Yankee Stadium yeah, okay we so in New York now. so so you get you get to Yankee Stadium it's a whole I, I'm guessing it's just a, a whole nother experience what, huh. what what what's what's that like the first you know you're walking into the stadium you're, you're going to the locker room whatever what 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 are you thinking what's going through your head at that moment well um besides oh my god <laughs> you, you just really feel like you're 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 excited obviously yeah. um you can't wait to get to the ballpark but you're you know it's in new, it's in the middle of the bronx yeah and it's busy and hustling and bustling and it's like oh, boom there's yankee stadium right in the middle of manhattan or you know of you know gotham and um and you park and you you know you go across the street and you get in the in the you know the stadium and they get you down to the dugout or to the, the locker room and yeah this is the yankee stadium this is where babe ruth and lou Gehrig played you're just going holy cow you walk in the locker room and uh the equipment guy excuse me the equipment was named Pete Sheehy, and the locker room is called Pete he was called Pete Sheehy locker room. Pete Sheehy was the bat boy or the clubhouse kid when Babe Ruth was there. Oh wow! Oh my gosh! Okay. Yeah, right? So this guy loved me because I was Irish. You know, Sheehy is a pretty Irish guy, so he put me in a sweet spot over in the, gave me a nice locker, and uh, he just really took care of me, and. Um, but you walk in and, you know, there's Bobby Mercer over there sitting in his rocking chair and, and Ron Guidry and, and, you know, there's Goose over there. And, you know, it was just like a who's who. It's like a Hall of Fame. You're walking into this place. You're like, wow. And the interesting part is, you know, that you, so you come on in what? It's 80, 81, right? Right. And they had just come off of, I mean, they were, that late 70s was chaotic, that late 70s Yankee team. They won a championship, but that was, they, there was a lot of turmoil, big names, lots of things going on. So it's interesting that you say they were so friendly to you because the perception on the outside is that was like a chaotic team with infighting right. and all types of stuff. Well, you know, they were very, they were very friendly towards me. Um, you know, New York carries its own um, gravity. And it's it, Yankees, it's, it's like it's an entity unto itself. Um, at the time, you know, Mr. Steinbrenner was very actively involved as he always was with not only trades, but just every aspect, you know, every, everybody always had to take into consideration what is Mr. Steinbrenner gonna say about this or, or feel about this. And so, you know, it was, it was crazy. And so, uh, that energy, that buzz was always, always there, no matter if it was a spring training game or if it was the first game of the season or if it's the offer. He was always a force to be reckoned with and, yeah. and, and, and understood that this is just the way this game runs here in New York. Um, but, you know, getting in the locker room and getting the uniform on and going down the tunnel and, and kind of seeing the, the field because uh, as the tunnel goes underneath the stands, you know, when you get down to close to the dugout, you have to go up some steps and then you see the grass and then you see the outfield and it just kind of opens up in front of you. And it's just like, 
oh my gosh, this is amazing. It's just like you're, it's, it's, you're in awe. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a Yankee for a short period of time. Does the date March 30th, 1982 stand out to you? Yeah, that was the day I got traded to the Giants. And, uh, you know, that spring, I had the worst spring training maybe of anybody in the world. I couldn't have gotten you guys out that day. <laughs> I, I Literally, I, I just could not get it together. And when I did get it together, it, it was like guys were hitting bullets off of the third base bag and it's bouncing fair. And, you know, it's, it was just bad. Yeah. It was bad. And then I got traded like a week before the season opened um, out to San Francisco. And of course their club was already set. So I, I had a couple of spring training games in the big leagues, uh, but still, and they, they had me scheduled for triple a and, and that was difficult because I started off slow there. And then I finally got my act together after getting hurt. I hurt my lower back and June or late May and I was on a DL for like six weeks and finally got back straightened out and once I did that I was able to things just clicked and and then I got called up in September and never never really kind of looked back from there that's exciting that's exciting let me let me ask you do you remember do you remember your your first strikeout yeah I believe it was um Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray. Eddie Murray. I'm a I'm from Baltimore. So I'm I'm a huge O's fan. I've been an O's fan forever. So uh that's exciting to me. That's really exciting. I'm now, pretty he, sure it was Eddie Murray. I, I could he be was, wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, I th I think you're right. I think you're right. Now, was he I mean, he was a, he was a couple years into his career, but was he was he a great player at that at that oh, time? Yeah. He, he already was. was. He was a four-hole hitter and just uh, you know, just a significant player yeah absolutely he was an all-star yeah, yeah yeah so when you when you're when you're on the mound here you are this young guy this rookie one of your first couple games and eddie murray steps to the plate what what's going through your head at that moment i'm thinking that's freaking eddie murray <laughs> <laughs> and you're going and i don't know what his what he's looking for yeah, and I, yeah. I'm slowly relying upon the catcher and he doesn't really know me. You know, he kind of, he caught me a couple of times in spring training and, but you know, and he's seen me throw a little bit, but you know, we don't really know each other. Very right. Well. So I'm like right. you, I'm going to throw whatever finger you put down. I'm going yeah. to throw that pitch, you know, but you just, uh, you know, that's where you have to get past your nerves. Yeah. Just go. All right. <laughs> here it comes, you know, and, and what's really fun is, you know, they don't throw any harder in the big leagues than they do in triple A. Right. Right. And again, it gets back to that, that thing that, you know, it's the same game. You just have to believe that, you know, you got to believe that. Yeah. yeah. And act upon it as if you believe it. And until you can actually truly believe it in your heart that, Hey, I do belong here. Yeah. So, so that so you, the the heart of your career is really spent in Montreal, right? Your most successful years, your the longevity. You didn't bounce around, right? You had a stable what looks like about four full years there, right? Give me. You played with some phenomenal players in Montreal. That was a that's got to be a unique experience, right? You're out of the country. You have all these great teammates. What what did that, 
that what did what, what did that feel like playing in Montreal at that mm-hmm. time when that was a good that was a good team too for a while right during yeah, that we, time? Had some, we had some very good teams Montreal is a good city I don't know how good of a baseball city it is but it's very European mm-hmm. and the fan base is good but it's not extensive and so you know you have a lot of fair weather fans they don't really understand the game they're more of a hockey type fan base but they kind of they've had baseball up there since what the 40s right yeah so right. they yeah. should they should have a at least some semblance of a of a baseball culture up there and they do but it's just different i um, going in and out of montreal is difficult at times because of customs and travel you know the money and the taxes are are different and expensive it's expensive to live there it's um you get killed on taxes um so it's expensive to play there um but our teams were and i think because you tend to be a little bit isolated because a a you're english speaking to b you're american and you're in a foreign country but for the most part they're very accepting they're very friendly um especially if you're doing well if you're playing well they really like you yeah um but they're like fans anywhere else you know if you're doing good you're great if you're doing badly you're a bum but that's <laughs> just the way the game is that's just that's life right yeah so um my wife and i both enjoyed montreal our first child was born up there and it's so funny we have people tell us all the time oh you, you, your your baby was born up there so that was free right and we're, not really. <laughs> the taxes are pretty high for that free health care. Yeah, <laughs> seriously. Well, I didn't really think about that. Yeah. So, but we had some great teams. Buck Rogers was my manager those four years, six, 86, 7, 8, 9. Excellent manager. Um, um, just Mike Fitzgerald was our, our catcher, and he was just such a great receiver um, and just a great guy. I, I was. I said the other day that in the four years that I was there with Mike, I, I maybe shook him off a handful of times. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. He just, he just synced in with every pitcher and everybody just loved throwing. Him. Nice. But we had great guys like, you know, I played with Andre Dawson and Tim Raines and Tim Wallach and Andres Galarraga and, you know, just great guys, great guys, good teammates, good players and good guys. Yeah. You know, really good guys. Yeah. Were there, were there, while you were playing, were there any guys that you just hated facing? Well, Bob Warner wasn't much of a friend. <laughs> Beat the crap out of him a lot of times. Um, Ozzie Smith was, was difficult. Yeah. Um, Vince, um, let's see, uh, Craig Reynolds with the, with the, the Houston Astros. He wasn't necessarily the greatest hitter in the world, but he owned me. And it was just like, you know, it's, it's so funny. Like, I don't think Pete, Pete Rose got a hit off of me. Or Mike Schmidt maybe got one hit off of me or something. But, you know, guys like Craig Reynolds, they owned me. It was just like, you know, just go figure. What, what was your favorite, um, two, two questions. What was your favorite year? Is there a year that stood out to you as your favorite year? And what was your favorite stadium to play in? Oh wow! Well, like you said, those those years I had in Montreal, those were all except for '89. I kind of struggled a little bit, but not terribly. Um, but '86, uh, '7, and '8, 
they were pretty fun years because I was in a lot of games and I had good success yeah. most of the time. Uh, low ERA, you know, good strikeouts to base on balls ratios. Um, I got in a lot of um, close games, and and that's that's just really when I kind of made my made my mark. Um, favorite cities. I loved playing in Chicago at Wrigley Field. That was cool. Montreal was nice. It's a nice ballpark. I loved pitching in that ballpark. Um, I loved pitching in the Vet in in uh, Philadelphia, whereas most people did. and nobody liked that place. <laughs> you know, I I loved pitching there. Yeah. Okay. I think it had something to do with Carlton because when Carlton was there, the mound was like high, uh, right? Mount Everest. It was yeah. like, and you could. You could yep. really get some torque coming off of that. Same oh thing. yeah. When Nolan was, you know, in Houston, the the mound was just like a, a mountaintop. Um, but I love San Diego, just primarily because of the weather and it's San Diego and the off field activities there. You know, golf and just great weather all the time. Yeah. Um, but those were primarily the best to me. Those were my favorite cities. So, so 86 was your, was what I would say was your best year in terms of just record ERA. I mean, it looks like that was probably the height of your career in 86. So I'm a Mets fan. So I got to ask you a question. The 86 Mets are this team and they've just been on the news with the 30 for 30 about how dysfunctional that team is and just the insanity that was that team from the outside looking in, you must've played them a lot, right? Cause you, oh, yeah. you played yeah. them a ton and you had a great year that your best year probably a, do you recall any moments playing them during that 86 season? And B, did you realize how dysfunctional that team was? Or or back then that wasn't really known. This well, is a really no, a, he, an after the fact thing. When you when you saw the Mets, you know, first of all, they were they were formidable. They were a good oh, team. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they had oh gosh, you just go down the whole lineup. They were good one through eight. They just really were, and they had a really strong pitching staff, and they were just good. And but they, you know, like when they would come through the airport, you'd, they'd all they all carried their golf clubs. I mean, it was like they could they could do no wrong. It was all it was it was not quite the same, but it was very similar to the um, the, the Cubs just a couple of years earlier. They were, when we played that team, the Cubs, I, as a player, I felt like we're definitely going to lose the series and we might get swept. That's how I felt every time we played the Cubs, whether we were playing at our place or, or their place. Wow. More so when we were going into Wrigley, they were, they were just voracious. They were just, they're going to beat you somehow. And that's pretty much how the Mets were in 86 i mean you got that was your what hojo hit hit 40 yeah yeah 24 from the from the left and you know whatever from the from the right and 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 you just had guys that were everybody had a career year just like the 84 uh cubs everybody had a career year and you know it, it just it's hard to go against something like that yeah yeah, but yeah, they were. You knew they were. They were. They were wild. They were having a good time. And they were living, <laughs> living large, and uh, they were having fun on the field. And they were having fun off the field. It, yeah. it just, 
you know, it was not a secret. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. How do you, you get into a game and let's say, you know, it's one of those games. I mean, listen, you're not going to have your best stuff all the time. And let's say, you know, you allow a home run or a big hit or something like that. And let's say you're at home and everybody's, let's say the crowd is booing you. I know fans can be relentless at times. How do you, how, how do you process that? How do you keep going as a, as, as a major league player when you've, you've, when something like that has happened and you're on the mound and you're like, oh my God, what, what the heck just happened to me here? Well, you have to have a short memory. <laughs> you, you just do. It's just like a PGA player when he shanks a ball, you know, into the next fairway or whatever. You got to, okay, you deal with it and then you forget about it. You just, you just have to put it behind you and go, you know what? Yeah, I gave up a dinger to whoever in the, in the eighth inning and it put them ahead. All right. What's you know, the next best, the next most important thing is the next very, the very next bit. Right. So you have to, yep. you can't, can't change that. Yep. You have to recognize it, acknowledge it for a moment and then you move on. Just move that's, forward. That's how you have to deal with it. Cause if you, if you're always living back there, it's, you can't you can't you can't play the game in front of you yeah you just can't you learn from it you know if you hit this pitch in this count you're going okay so was he looking for it was he lucky what you know you kind of did i throw a a pitch that wasn't a good pitch you know what's the deal you learn from it and then you 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 just don't do that again if if you can help it yeah so you, you have to have a short memory yeah yeah that makes sense. And, and let me ask you this relationship wise, you know, nowadays you see guys, they're all friends after the game. They're all chatting ahead of the game. Was that the way it was, or did you all not like each other because you were on different teams? Well, I wouldn't say we were as collegial as everybody is today. Um, but I remember, you know, the lessons you learn early on. I remember I had Hoyt Wilhelm as a pitching coach, in West Haven in 1979 uh, for a a few months until he got sick. And he called us all together one afternoon down in the bullpen. And, you know, Hoyt Wilhelm, he was old school, old school, old school, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, he didn't believe at all in any kind of fraternization with the other team. And (laughs) he just said, no, I ain't going there. I ain't doing that. I don't even like those guys. And so he said, he called the pitchers together and, and we're down the bullpen, and he goes, boys, let me ask you all a question. He was from North Carolina, real country boy. And he said, what would you do if you were walking through the desert and you came upon a, a hitter, and he was kind of laying there in the, in the sand, and his lips were all blistered, and he was, didn't have anything to drink, and just sunburned, and he was a mess, and you had a big old gallon of water, and and you were in good shape. He said, what would you do if you came upon a guy like that? We're all like, he's, I don't know. He looked around, different guys. I said, I don't know, Hooter. What, what would you do? He says, I'd kick dirt in his face and keep walking. Jeez. <laughs> oh, and, and so the, the moral to that story is you don't ever give a hitter a break. Yeah, yeah. If you That's got hysterical. a down, you step on his neck. Oh, my God him to death until he just doesn't get back up again and that was the mentality today like 
just like I'm watching these games today. When was the last time you saw a guy intentionally really bury one hard inside off the Yeah. They don't, they don't do it. No, no. no. No, the, be, the best you get nowadays is pitching up in the zone, but nobody comes inside. Nobody, no. the hitters no. almost control the game now with the way Absol the pitch. The way these, I was telling my wife a story about Don Drysdale the other day. And I don't know if this is true or not true, but it sounds like it should be true. If it isn't true, it ought to be true. Don Drysdale was pitching against the Giants one day. And back in those days with Don Drysdale or Stan Williams or, uh, um, any of the any of the any of the pitchers, the power pitchers back then, you did not dig in at the plate. I mean, you you barely got a foothold in in the, in the ground. You just didn't do it. And if you did, you were going to pay the consequences. So, as the story I've heard goes, Willie Mays was coming up to hit, and he kind of started digging in. Into the into, and all of a sudden he realized Drysdale was on the mound. And as the story goes, he kind of backed out and went like this to Drysdale. Where did Drysdale put that first pitch? <laughs> right in his rib cage. <laughs> yeah, it was a different game. Yeah. Or guys like Bob Dixon, that he would hit you in the neck without even blinking, <laughs> and he'd do it again. Yeah, yeah. So like the other night, I was watching the game, and somebody actually did come inside pretty substantially. And as a pitcher, I'm saying to myself, do it again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because you know he's thinking outside. Right. Double up, double up. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hard. Yeah. Get that Because my job, if I could get that guy to move his feet, I win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If absolutely. He's the, if he's got it in the back of his head, that you know what, he might just lose one inside on. And and I gotta say, as like a fan, sure. and I'm a Mets fan, so the Mets have had a lot of hard throwing pitchers recently, right? From Degrom, Syndergaard, Wheeler, right before he left. Yeah. Nothing more maddening as a fan to watch a guy who throws a hundred get lit up on the outside <laughs> corner because the the, the 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 hitter has no fear anything's coming inside. No. And so I always tell my, my sons who now play little league, I said, the reason they can put a hundred mile an hour pitch on the outside corner to, to right center is because they're actually leaning out over the plate with no fear. Absolutely. And it's mind boggling that in the, today's game, they don't, yep. they just don't yep. teach throwing inside. Yep. They, yep. It, to me, I, I could not have pitched. I couldn't pitch in the big leagues today because, you know, and I guess part of it is the way, you know, the way the game has, has changed is that, you know, if you do throw inside, they're going to warn you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they're taking that. They're taking that. Those those four inches or five inches on the inside part, but they're taking those away from. You. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I don't know what. How do you compensate for that? For a guy that you know, I threw in the in the upper upper eighties, low nineties. I wasn't a, and that was pretty hard. That was above average back when I played. But today, shoot, that's you know, that's a puff. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, for for most of the players out there today, but still, it's about pitching, you yeah. know. And, and that's what we used to do. You know, we would sit in the bullpen, and we're talking pitch counts and selections, and and you know, it's like when I go to a game today, I'll go to the Rays game or whatever, and uh, you know, I I don't sit there and watch the game like norm like normal people. 
because I'm not talking, I'm not chitty chatting, I'm looking. And people are, they'll ask me, like I take clients to games all the time. And they'll go, well, what do you, you know, what do you, what are you thinking right now? And I said, well, okay, so it's the second, or it's the, it's the fourth inning. And it's now the second time through the lineup. What did this guy do his last at bat? I go, I don't know, I was drinking a beer. You know, and I said, well, what, and what pitch did he hit? Or, you know, and, and, and they go, how, how do you know that stuff? I said, well, that's what I did for 25 years. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so I, I'm, as I'm watching a game, I'm pitching. And I'm going, all right, my pitch count, my pitch selection, uh, my location. Um, I'm thinking that. Like, uh, that's, that's how I watch a ball game. You know, what did this guy do his last at bat? What's the count? You know, who's on base? Um, you know, all of these things. Those, those all kind of, it's like this running ticker tape in my head. Mm -hmm. This is, this is what's going on. And most normal people who watch a ball game, you know, it's like, you know, they had the shift on. So what, what, you know, do I want to pitch to the shift or not? You know? And so it's, it's, it can be it, it can be very interesting watching a ball game through these eyeballs. I'll tell you. I could believe it. Yeah, I could believe it. So let me let me ask another question. So let's uh, let's think about the off season. You hear a lot a lot nowadays about guys in the off season working really hard and doing this and doing that. What was your off season like? Did you have some sort of training program that you would that you would incorporate into your into your daily you know routine every day? Well, it all depends. It, it depended upon whether I went to winter ball or not. See, because back in, in my day, like if I didn't have enough innings because of an injury or whatever, or if I, I just didn't get a lot of innings because of, um, you know, the manager or whatever, and I needed more innings, um, you could go play in either the Dominican or Puerto Rico or Mexico or Venezuela and get a lot of innings in. If, it may, maybe you wanted to go down there to work on a pitch. So like I went to Puerto Rico one, one winter just to work on throwing a changeup. And I learned, I learned how to throw a changeup down there. Or sometimes you would go to winter ball just to make some extra money. Because quite frankly, the money back when I played, especially when I first started, not real sharp. You know, not yeah. real high. The major league minimum my first year, full year in the big leagues in 83 was like $47,000. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Today it's five fifty. Yeah. A little mm -hmm. bit different, yeah. Something like that. So that's a big difference. So I yeah. had to go to yeah. winter ball to make some extra dough. Yeah. Um, but in a, after I had kind of gotten established in the big leagues, my off season would be, you know, we'd come home in October because we unfortunately we never got into the postseason, and I would take about two weeks off, two and a half, three weeks off, just just to decompress, right? And then I'd start working out. I'd either get in the gym. Or and or I would get in the pool. I would do a lot of swimming. Okay. And so, um, and then I would do that until about Christmas, New Year's, January one. I would start my running and throwing. I would start playing catch, and then by the end of January, I'm actually on the mound and throwing to a catcher. Okay. Spring training usually started late February or middle of February. So by the time I got to spring training, 
my uh, endurance, my strength, my my throwing, I was able to throw. I was I was ready to go the first day of spring training. I didn't go to spring training to get in shape. Okay. I went in spring. I went to spring training in in basically uh, beginning of the, of the season form. Um, I could throw. I could uh, throw repeated days in a row. Um, I could throw, you know, an inning or two or maybe three. Uh, I had my endurance build up, and because I always approached spring training, whether I was a veteran or my first year in spring training, I always approached spring training as if I was, I had to make the team. I didn't take anything for granted. Yeah, yeah. And so that you know, that was just my approach. I didn't want to take any. I didn't want to lose my job because I was complacent. This wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. And uh, so, so you, you were both a starter and a reliever. Right. So l- let me ask you this, which one did you like better and how do you prepare for each of those different roles? I liked relieving better. Um, my mentality, my makeup was such that as a starter, it was hard for me to carry it from start to start to start because there was so much downtime yeah. in between each start. Right that was hard for me to carry the intensity level and the effectiveness from, from start to start to start. Um, I might have a very good start, but then inconsistent the next start. Whereas as a reliever, if I came into the, if I came to the ballpark every day, there again, not taking anything for granted. Uh, if I came to the ballpark every day thinking I might be in this game tonight, it kind of kept my mental edge yeah. up. And, uh, and I was fortunate to have the type of arm and body that could pitch a lot of, a lot of appearances to be yeah. in a lot of games. Um, and so I ate up a lot of innings for guys and uh, got in a lot of ball games. And so um, I just had a good recovery. I had good mechanics. I have very few um, physical issues bone spurs or whatever that I just, you know, always got bone spurs, but mine were pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but um, it's like the difference between being a, uh, a marathoner and a sprinter. Yeah. And I just had more of a sprinter mentality. And um, it's just, that's just how it, it just worked for me. Yeah. It just for me. Yeah. Well, now, now looking back over your baseball career, how would you just summarize it? your own personal experience, your, your whole career, the, the years of playing all throughout your life, how would you just summarize the whole experience? I was, I was a late bloomer, you know, early on, you know, told me my story through junior high school and high school and even college. It wasn't until I got to Florida Southern that I really had Good numbers, really good numbers. And, and I didn't have good numbers in junior college because I had such an awful team. Yeah. I mean, it's hard when you're, when, you're, when you're playing for bad ball clubs, it's hard to have a winning record and even a decent ERA at times because, you know, guys don't get to balls that they should have gotten to or, you know, the cat, it, it was just – but natural talent kind of got me through uh, to the next level. Um, but I, I think if I were to summarize my career, I had a really good career. I had good stuff, and I, I, I had some great teams, but I had a good career. I, I was successful. 
And, uh, you know, it's like when we get together in the uh, alumni, when the major league alumni get together, you know, you kind of look around the room and they said, you know, they were still a big leaguer. That kind of puts them in a different echelon, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I kind of look around and, and I know what my ERA was. And I know what my hits per innings and walks and you know, strikeouts, the things that matter, you know. I had a guy come up to me in church a couple of years ago, and he said, man, I was looking at your numbers. You had a really good career. And I went, well, thank you. And he said, do you know what you'd have been, what you'd be making today if you were playing this <laughs> number? Yeah. You're like, thanks. Yeah, I do. <laughs> and he goes, man, do you ever wish you were playing today? And I'm like, well, maybe. <laughs> You know, excuse me, it's, uh, but I, I, I was, I would classify my career as a successful big league player. Um, I was never, never an all-star, but I had really good numbers. And, you know, the slot I was in as a middle reliever, short reliever, you know, you don't see too many of those guys in the all-star teams. True. Right. That's true. Yeah. But, you know, when I look back at my look and I look at my, my, um, my numbers, I'm like, I'll put those up against a lot of people. And absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I'm I don't have very many re regrets in baseball. Um, got a couple, but everybody does. Sure. Yeah. But uh, it was a great career, had a ton of fun um, and escaped the game healthy and, and on top of things. And so it was a good career. That's exciting. That's exciting. So, so tell us about, about your, your career now, what you're doing with yourself now, how long you've been doing it and, and how you got into this role. Okay. Well, I'm a financial advisor with Northwestern Mutual and I've been doing it for 20, almost 21 years. Um, I got recruited by my best friend here in Lakeland who had been with Northwestern for about 15 years. Um, and, um, you know, prior to, after my retirement from baseball, I got involved in a golf business, helping nonprofit organizations raise money, putting on these golf tournaments called the Golf Marathon. Okay. And it was fun and it was different. I got to play a lot of golf and travel a lot and made some money and did okay with it. But it was just, you know, every year I'm, I'm, I'm having to reinvent the wheel with another organization. And it was just, it wasn't really fulfilling or satisfying. And then um, I got recruited by another financial services company through uh, by another former player, former teammate of mine, Brian Holman, who was a right-handed pitcher for the Expos okay. and the Mariners and somebody else, I can't remember. But he was working for a company out in Seattle as a, a branch manager. And this company had offices all over the country. And they were looking for an, a, a branch manager in their uh, Orlando office. And when he called me and he said, I, he put my name in the hat for that job. I said, I don't know anything about A, being a branch manager, or B, the financial services world. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, you can teach a monkey how to do the financial services stuff. We just need some that's got integrity, that's trustworthy, that likes working with people, that's you know, honest and, you know, good guy. And he said, you can learn all the other stuff. And I said, well, I'll, I'll look at it. 
you know, and so I started talking to the headhunter and they put me through different personality profile tests and, you know, they went all different kinds of testing and interviewing. And, and so I went through like three or four different interviews. And, and finally, as I was, every time I'd get some questions that I really didn't know the answers to, I would ask my buddy with Northwestern Mutual that recruited me, I'd go, hey, Tommy, what's, uh, what does this mean? What is that about? And, and he'd you know, answer the questions. And then after the second call, he said, well, listen, um, if you're interested in this area, you ought to interview with us because we, you know, you might like it. And so I said, well, I am maybe, okay. And then the next call, I, I bring back more questions to him. And he goes, hey, uh, you know, I know I said the other day that, you know, you may want to interview with Northwestern Mutual, but you really ought to. I'm like, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So after the fourth call and the fourth interview with the other company, he goes, hey, dummy, <laughs> do you want to go work in Orlando? I went, no. He goes, do you want to commute to Orlando every day? Do you want to live in Orlando every day? I'm like, no, no way. He said, well, listen, you can do everything they're asking you to do over there. You can do it right here in 50 and be 15 minutes from here. You ought to interview with us. And so I did. Yep. Finally, the lights came on, right? So <laughs> I interviewed with Northwestern. And the other company had uh, decided not to make me an offer for the, the managerial role, but they did offer me a, another position with the, with the firm. Yeah. It was pretty gratifying, but I, I decided that the, uh, the contract offer with Northwestern Mutual was better, better suited for me and a better fit. And so that's how I kind of got started. And that was 20, almost 21 years ago. Wow. And so it's just been a great fit for me. It's a great company. Uh, we help people, you know, we do planning and uh, just help people identify where they are and where, they're, where, where they want to be and where the gaps are and be able to fulfill those gaps with, uh, you know, best in class uh, products and services. And so it's just been a really nice fit for me and um, I'm still plugging away. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. Well, well, Andy, listen, I'm, I, we're not going to keep you any longer. We've kept you way, way too long. So thankful that you came on today. So much, uh, so much great information and, and really getting into your head and experiencing game for your, through your eyes has, has been just, just incredible. So thank you so much for joining us today. And, and we really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure, and I just I love doing this kind of stuff because it helps me remember. Yeah, you know, not only the fun times, but the interesting times and the interesting people I've come across and yep. been been in association with. And it's just, you know, I have lived a um, a storied life. You know, yeah, I, I have. I have, like I said, I have very few regrets. I I, I like to say I've lived a charmed life. Yeah. Um, if this game has provided me with not only finances, but, but just all kinds of experiences that I would never have been able to experience, you know, and, and to be able to do that and come out of it healthy uh, and, and better off, you know, I'm just, I'm just very grateful. Very grateful. This, Great. this is a big part of that. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share a little bit of my life. Absolutely. Thank Thanks, you so Andy. much. Andy. Really yeah, really appreciate that. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. That'd be great. Phil, nice to meet you finally. And and uh, Darren, good to put a name and a face together, like you said earlier. And and uh, 
look forward to maybe doing this again someday. Yeah, I think that sounds great. Really Thanks, appreciate Andy. that. Thanks again, Andy. Be well and feel better. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank All right. You. Take care, Andy. So that was our uh, our great conversation with uh, with Andy McGaffigan. Phil, what did you think about that conversation? I mean, it's 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 incredible because you always you want to have the chance to ask a big leaguer, you know, from start to finish, what the career was like, you know, and and what I I guess what I take away, and I thought he he summed it up really well. And I know I'm sure a lot of our our viewers maybe don't know his name, maybe didn't experience his career, right? It's it's several decades ago. You you would have had to really be a big baseball fan in yep. that era to to remember his career. But when he said a, like a successful major league pitcher, that's what his career was. Like we yep. talked to yep. a successful major league pitcher that pitched for you know a decade yep. at a high level yep. and produced at a high level. Um, so that's fascinating just to hear the, the, just the experiences and what he went through. So that, that, that was a treat for me. You know, and, and, and I think, I think that the format that we did and how we talked to him was, was a little bit different. We could have sit there and we could, we could have dropped names. We could have talked about, you know, all the batters he's faced, you know, he's faced, you know, he didn't met Joe Morgan, uh, Ryan Sandberg, Tony Perez, Gary Carter, Tony Gwynn. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Even newer guys like Ricky Henderson, Frank Thomas, Edgar Martinez. You know, you know that wasn't the conversation. He really was able to, to get us into his mind and mm -hmm. really let us know what he was experiencing, what he was feeling. I mean, the fact that, that literally, you know, I mean, he never thought he was going to be a major leaguer. And then, you know, it was, it was hey, I just thought I was going to be a carpenter. And then it's, oh, somebody wants me to play. Okay, I'll go play. And then it's, yeah. oh, somebody else wants me to play. Okay, I'll go play. And the next thing you know, you're drafted by the Yankees and you're like, well, this is interesting. I can, you know, I, I, I you know, who knows? Who knows where this can go? And then he has that incredible season in double A. And next thing you know, he's, he's saying, wait a second, I'm a major league player. Amazing. I deserve to be in the majors. And then you get there and you walk in and, you know, and, and like he said, I mean, he walks in in his, in his, in his little car and he's got Mickey Rivers with his Rolls Royce and Reggie with his Porsche. And, and he's like, oh, my God, well, you know, what's going on here? And then all the guys, they didn't treat him badly. Like they, they welcomed him, which I thought was incredible. So there was just so many, so many really interesting things um, that he's lived through. And, and you know what? He's right. He was he was a good major league player. He absolutely be awesome to go to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he absolutely was, and and to be able to live that life and, and to look back and say, you know what, hey, I played and and I was successful and I I enjoyed it and 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 I don't think he took anything for granted and I and I love that about him, you know, absolutely, absolutely. So, so I hope that everybody enjoyed that interview, and uh, you know, let us know what you thought. And, you know, our hope is that we're going to have more interviews like that in the future and, and, uh, and hopefully bring a lot of different perspectives in front of everybody. So, uh, you know, make sure you tell us what you think. Make sure you tell your friends about it. Make sure you tell your neighbors, your family, people you like, people you don't like. Let's just spread the word and uh, let's kick it into high gear season two. So, Phil, great episode as always. Good seeing you. And uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great day, everybody. Take care.